Get ready to quit the bill. The QTB crew is rounding up all the gaming news and hot topics of the week with a little extra something. And here are your hosts, Bruno and Nick. What it do? Welcome to the QTB podcast. We're so glad you could join us. My name is Bruno, and with me, as always, is my childhood friend and co-host, Nick. I like to call him Long Branch Penny Whistle. How you doing, bud? I'm pretty sure at this point you're just going to like a Dungeons and Dragons like name generator, <laughs> and just and just rolling the dice, and, and that's and that's dice. what I get. Yeah, that's actually what I should do. That's what we should do. We should just have a name generator that just comes up with one. Well, listen, in the future we're definitely going to need one because I'm going to run out of names eventually. I would hope so. so. <laughs> I'm gonna run it. I've got a list. I got a list here, huge list of names, and we're gonna call you every episode. And I, one of these days, I'm gonna run out. So, so if you have a list of a great name generator out there, then send it our way. You can always send us stuff if you have anything that you want to say to us. Um, you can send it via quitthebuild.com. And we have had some really interesting articles on there recently. Brad, our uh, uh, resident beer connoisseur posted an amazing article today on the six great beer-inspired or video game-inspired beers. Yeah. Right? And uh, he's th- apparently it's uh, SF Beer Week for all you Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area people out there, or just California people in general. Uh, there's going to be a great beer all share, showcase throughout all this week. And later on uh, this week on the podcast, we're going to have Brad to talk about some other beer stuff and, you know, all that good stuff. What do you think? I think we need to officially give Brad the the job title of, of beer correspondent for QTB. Ooh, I, think, I like that. I think he needs to print that business card as soon as possible because this oh, man definitely. knows his stuff. But, yeah, definitely check that out. I do want to point out, and because just of when this podcast is going to be airing on Wednesday, that you know, depending on when you listen to it, you may get uh, exposed to that Nintendo Direct that's coming out. Uh, yeah. It's the first mainline, like official, like first party game Nintendo Direct that we've had since like mid 2019, uh, because they're very they don't announce these things very far in advance. Um, sometimes you can you can find out about it the same day. So, yeah, we will definitely be uh, giving our reactions to those games. We're expecting a lot of big reveals to happen because Mm -hmm. Nintendo has been playing it kind of close to the vest, especially with uh, series series games like Breath of the Wild 2 that we know is supposed to be coming up and maybe even a new Smash character reveal if we're lucky. Uh, So that'd be awesome. So, yeah, definitely make sure to tune in to uh, Saturday's podcast as well, and we will be giving you our, uh, our reactions to all of the... I'm hoping very cool announcements that come our way. But uh, yeah, aside from that, you know, everything's good, man. Happy to be here with you for another episode. Yeah, definitely. And we have a great episode in store for everyone today. But before we get started, today's podcast was sponsored in part by Pearson Limited. For marketing media that works and bespoke design to power your business, visit PierceUnlimited.com. Uh, Nick, we've been killing it on the the ratings game. Our our listeners out there have been dropping some sweet ratings on Apple Podcasts because we're going to be giving away a nice video game merch set from Pierce Unlimited at the end of this month and subsequently every month 
that we're doing a podcast, which is from now until our deathbeds, obviously. 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 Yeah, we're this in for is, life. We're yeah. in for life. We've signed contracts in blood over an animal sacrifice. It was very awkward. Mm. Um, the animal in question was a worm because that's all we could find on short notice out in the middle of the woods at night. Yeah. And we didn't really want to, you know, we're not really into animal harming and we didn't want PETA on our backs or anything exactly. like that. But it's in blood. Yeah. So just so you guys know, we're not going anywhere we're gonna be here we're gonna be giving you the news speaking of news what do we got in store for the lovely people today nicholas well i'm so glad you asked because we have got some some very interesting articles to talk about today uh, actually one of which uh, i posted there on our our reddit account uh, quit the build dash podcast that i got a lot of input from uh, my fellow redditors about which yeah. is a really, a really great way to kind of involve the community with our conversations, I think, about the news. And uh, we'll, get, we'll get into that one a little bit later. That's about how there has been a new lawsuit, a class action lawsuit, opened up against Sony about controller drift, which means that now all of the big three players, Uh-oh. Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony, are now caught up in these you know, ongoing class action lawsuits. A lot to Got talk em. about with that one. Uh, and also later, we have another indie spotlight segment with uh, some, some guys that I met. Yeah, I mean, it's it, they just we keep lining them up. Uh, these guys are Dev Hour Games, and I got a chance to talk to them about their upcoming game called Lovelands, which is a mm. uh, let, let's let's say that the, the the premise of the game for a horror experience is unique to say the least. Yeah. So we'll be uh, having a had a chat with them, and uh, yeah. But uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about. Uh, is all about uh, Valheim, you know, this upcoming game that, you know, we we have seen viral games in our time, you know, that about oh, that yeah. story of that come from behind release of a title that everybody starts playing and it peaks and then some manage to capitalize on its success, some kind of fall by the wayside, right? We talked about how yeah. Fall Guys kind of had a big a big launch and never really quite had a hook or or content releases that kept people playing. Not to say that it's a dead game, but you know, no one's talking about Fall Guys today like like they were many months ago. These are hard truths, very very hard pills to swallow. Yeah, but Valheim is definitely having its time in the spotlight and, and this is an article from pcgamer.com about how it's essentially at this point it is Steam's biggest viral hit ever. Uh, wow. This is an early access game. And it's already sold more than 2 million copies, which is nuts because I remember just like a couple days ago, the story breaking that it had sold 1 million copies. And that was like, a, that was a milestone. It's like, oh, we just, we just doubled it. Yeah. Out of nowhere. So, you know, when this article was created, uh, which is just yesterday, there were 370,000 concurrent players on Steam and rising every single day. Everybody is talking about this game, and especially for something that's in early access and is as robust and 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 kind of fleshed out as it is in that state. It's definitely a very cool thing to see a game like this really get some traction early on. What do you think? So for those of you who don't know what Valheim is, because I certainly didn't until somebody posted this um, article on Quit the Build, which was, I believe Brad posted it. And it really kind of drew my attention to it. Like, wow, you've got 2 million people talking about a game and I haven't even heard of it. It must have come on the scene very quickly. And that's definitely the case. Well, first of all, with a name like Valheim, like that's a cool name. So I'm already on board with the name. I feel like, I don't know, that's like a like a 
sounds like a Viking type thing. And, and, and that's kind of what it is. It's got this like world of Warcraft feel to it. Like it looks like that when you kind of go on to watch it on Twitch or something, if you, if you end up playing it, 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 it has this, this world of Warcraft feel, um, and it looks pretty interesting. I didn't really know what I was watching, and apparently that seems to be a problem with <laughs> with a lot of people. Like, <laughs> there seems to be a learning curve um, on in the game. What do you? Why? What, what's up with that, Nick? <laughs> well, survival games always have that learning curve, right? You know, yeah. any any good survival game is gonna give you that sense of you know dropping you in the middle of this unfamiliar world with all these new crafting systems that you have to learn and some games can be more unforgiving than others with the rule set of like what happens when you die and Valheim is no stranger to that it when you when you go into the game uh, a procedurally generated world much like Minecraft is created so you're okay. getting a new gameplay you know experience in terms of your surroundings every time there's different oh, wow. biomes different bosses that you can summon and fight I think they said as of right now there's like five or six major bosses in the game um, that you can you can go after is kind of the the focal point of of your goal, and you know the big thing about this is that you know looking at the gameplay. If you were to pull up some YouTube videos of this game right now, there's not going to be any kind of single hook or or idea behind this that Valheim is done first. Okay, you know yeah. it, it, the open world exploration, like I just said, Minecraft has that procedural generation has been yep. doing it for a long time. A lot of other games I can think of, like games like uh, Seven Days to Die, where it's like a survival style game where you know you go into a new world every time, um, and there's always that that uncertainty of what what your world is going to be like when you when you create it. What's really cool about Valheim, and I think when we, we talk about like, okay, why on earth is this game getting such an unbelievable amount of traction, especially for a paid game? And I think there's a couple of factors behind it. Number one, this is a $20 game. Affordable. Right, yeah, right out of the yeah. gate. You know, people will pay 60 bucks easily for a really good survival AAA experience, uh, which is not to say that the visuals and all that, you know, this is early access. It's, it's rough around the edges, like some of the particle effects you can tell have, have not been looked at in, in quite some time. And that's fine. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing it. I, yeah. You know, it, it, it is what it is. You kind of expect that with, with these oh, yeah. types of, of games. But I think that price point is really doing it a lot of favors to make it very easy to be like 20 bucks and everyone's talking about it. Of course, I'm yeah, going to really. hop in and try it. Here is the crazy thing about this, Bruno. Okay. The install size of this game is I think just under one gigabyte. That's what? it. What? That's it. No. Yep. Get out so of town. When you create these procedurally generated games, you know, you don't have to have like a dedicated map in, you know, in your files of what the game world is gonna yeah. look right, right? Um, and of course a lot of like I said, the, the the shadows and the particle effects are kind of primitive. So it, it kind of helps pare down the size. I'm sure the the final product, whatever that looks like, when it gets out of early access will be a lot bigger. But you have such a huge advantage, and I saw a lot of people commenting on that, how they loved that they were able to buy the game and be playing it within, like, one minute, literally. Wow. You know, downloading That's it and installing incredible. it. Yeah, so there's a lot of accessibility with it um, yeah. that I think comes with that territory as I mean, well. That, that should be able to run on a potato, like a literal potato. Well, I'm not really sure what the PC specs look like, you know, in terms of, of how easy it is to run, but you would think so, right? It's not yeah, right. right. There's really, not a yeah. whole lot of, of, of muscle behind it, so... 
Um, and like you said, yeah, the visuals kind of harken back to almost like a an old school 3D MMO like EverQuest yeah. or World of Warcraft uh, kind of in, in its original days. Um, yeah, I didn't mind that pixelated look that, that it had. Like it did have this pixelated look, but I think that's just a testament to art style and how everyone like cries about graphics in the gaming community we're all crying about like oh this the graphics need to be better and that's not that's not true graphics have reached like a a pretty good peak like there's not too much that we're gonna get out of graphics that, that we haven't already have gotten in terms of like the polygons that are added to to um, to a character. So, for example, you know, and this is just for maybe our listeners who don't know exactly what I'm talking about. But you know, all 3D characters are made up of a polygon or or a 3D shape. And as time has progressed, there have been more points or vertices put in to these polygons to make them smoother and make them look more realistic in terms of the roundness or whatever. So we've gotten to a peak in terms of that but ray tracing and lighting effects will always be the number one thing that differentiates uh, a game in terms of really good graphics so it's not just about i think when people say you know all oh, the graphics are really good i don't think they necessarily mean like detail of the shirt you know and seeing the fabric or the the pores of skin like we can get into that detail but there's still a lot to be said from simple graphics like Fortnite or any type of art style that we see like Overwatch and then throwing good lighting on there. We see so much of these different art styles that are emerging, basically kind of flipping the graphic thing on its head saying not everything needs to be hyper realistic like Call of Duty. Let's just go ahead and make them look like Pixar characters because that was my first thought when seeing <laughs> Overwatch was like, is this Pixar? Did right. Pixar do a shooter? Like, what's yeah. up? It, it definitely looks like it when you look at the animations, like something that they would do. Yeah. So, I mean, for this game to have that, you know, uh, and hit this interesting art style i say go with it like embrace it don't don't feel the need to go where the ball is in terms of trying to or you know where it where it is currently going to where what other people are doing but instead try something new just you know and and like we're going to talk about later on in uh in the episode with the, the indie game spotlight that you had a great interview with that you can do a lot with basic graphics and it can still be immersive so here's the thing about about Valheim that I think is really interesting is looking at the the player count since the game the game released I think around uh, February 2nd of, of this month so I mean when you when you want to talk about just a, a whirlwind of from going into early access not release but going into early access that you know I'm looking at a, gra- a graph here on pcgamer.com uh, about yeah. You know how the actual number of players stacks up against Twitch viewers, because oftentimes with these types of games, a reason why the game goes viral is because a lot of people, especially big name influencers, start to pick up your game and start playing it on Twitch. Yeah, yeah. But what's really interesting is around like the 7th of February, 8th of February, it starts to show where, yeah, the the number of players and the number of Twitch viewers are rising, but then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden... 
uh, the number of players just just takes off into the stratosphere, going from like a hundred thousand to th- over three hundred thousand by itself, while the number of Twitch viewers kind of stays about the same at around a hundred thousand. Wow! Yeah, I is, see that. Yeah, it's and I think that's a really powerful uh, piece of information to kind of understand how this game went viral. Is that it, it's 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 not just Twitch; it's able to survive on its own merit. And mm. you know, I think that there is always going to be a market for a good survival game. People love this kind of stuff. There's nothing quite like the experience of getting dropped into a game like Rust or Ark or or any of these survival-type games for the first time where you just have that brand-new sense of wonder and fear of, like, what do I need to do and what's going to happen to me in, like, the next 60 seconds if I don't, you know, get get, get it together? Yeah. And as speaking to your point about graphics, you know, I, we, we talked about this in a last episode. Justin from, from our, our QTB crew had talked about his frustration with the cost of PC parts. That problem right. has not gone away. No, and not at right all. And right now, you know, for a good, like, cutting-edge graphics card, you're looking at easily a $2,000 price tag for just the graphics card. And the mm. GPUs are expensive, too, or the CPUs, rather, are, are expensive as well. So what used to be... Uh, a thing where you could you could you could have a, a, a thousand bucks and put together not a, a bleeding edge computer but a really good one that can support things like ray tracing and 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 4K you know display yeah. graphics that now that's not even you know, your your four figure you know uh, budget is probably not even going to be enough to get the graphics card and because of that issue with the aftermarket and people trying to to use it for things like like cryptocurrency mining. I think there is definitely a demand for games that are easy to run, that yep. offer really cool experiences that everybody can play together since this is an online co-op experience. If you want to play with friends, you can create servers or even dedicated servers with up to 10 people you can play co-op with this on. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I, I think I think you're dead on. Like, don't worry about trying to, you know, get all the, all the, the buzzwords into your game. Honestly, Bruno, and this is just a personal rant for me, I am sick of hearing the word ray tracing. <laughs> I really am. I, you know, I I understand and I've seen it for myself what yeah. what it does to a game in terms of the visuals. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to have you know every single thing. It's always like oh, does it? It's almost like a, a meme at this point. Oh, it, it's it always like Mario or something like that. Like Mario with ray tracing. Mario sixty four. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like that's not that's not needed. <laughs> right. <laughs> we like we're good. Yeah, yeah. Like we we love the game as a kid, and I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting to see. It's like when people add VR onto a game. Oftentimes, it's like okay, that's that's nice, but. You know, I, I, I'm happy with it the way it was, but... Did you fix some of the bugs that were in the game that made it almost <laughs> unplayable before? Like, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. we really want. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think that the, it's very cool to see a game like this with where the, where the shadow effects and, and, the, and all of the particle effects are, you know, pretty rudimentary. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really happy for these guys that they are able to see such... I, I, there's no way they were prepared for this kind of level of exposure, especially when... As far as I can remember, nobody was really talking about this game prior to its early access release. So to have that kind of meteoric rise, um, just like games like Among Us and games like Fall Guys, where now you have yeah. to, you know, with with whatever team you have, and it's probably not going to be a big one, you've got to have some very important meetings where the next step you take, the next move that you make is every single move is so precious to capture that momentum 
and to make sure that people keep coming back to playing your game and it's not just a fad that in, in a month or two, you're going to be looking at the numbers and wondering where did we go wrong. Yeah, we'll be watching you. I thought you were going to break into a uh, a police <laughs> thing. You said, yeah. Every step you take and yeah. every move you make. Every game and you every, play. Yep. That's a lyric. Every game you play yeah. will be watching you. And um, I, I, you, you sent me an article also about that I think that is also worth kind of segging in, into in that Valheim, you know, is a very successful game, but m much like any other game that's just plain hard or difficult in terms of how unforgiving the rule set is, you know, a lot of people are getting in there and realizing, okay, like if I if I venture too far out and I have a, a bad day and, and one guy takes me out, you can get one shot in this game very easily um, if you're not paying attention or even if you are paying oh, yeah. attention that, you know, now you've dropped all your stuff in a location you probably can't get back to. And it's it's so discouraging <laughs> when that kind of thing happens. And there are a lot of people that are saying, like, you know, it, the game is just too hard for them. You know, I remember um, when Cuphead came out, Terry uh, from, from QTB was talking yeah. about how he was really looking forward to playing the game. And he said, I mean, it's, it's a very tough game. It's a, it's a, it's a boss rush, you know, platforming uh, nightmare. And the game yeah. came out and he saw how difficult <laughs> it yeah. was. And he was like, ah, you know, I'm not going to be able to, I, I, I don't think he ever bought the game. And he had been looking forward wow. to it for a really long time. That's right. And so, you know, I think that can be definitely something that, that can hinder you when you have a successful game that becomes notorious for its difficulty you pick up a certain group of people that that love that challenge but i i think oftentimes you can alienate more people than you attract um, at the end of the day and i am curious to see uh, how they address maybe with maybe new game settings or server settings where you can kind of ease up on the difficulty a little bit maybe let you keep your stuff when you die you know yeah well i mean to your point about the difficulty of games I, I think that there's definitely a, a balance, obviously. I, I have Cuphead. I played Cuphead. I didn't beat all the levels of Cuphead. And that, to me, was fine. There's a ton of games that I haven't beaten. But there are some levels within Cuphead that I worked really hard <laughs> to, to beat. And yeah. it was so satisfying to finally beat it. And that is something that doesn't happen too often in gaming anymore. And I think that's what makes something like a Battle Royale game special is that the odds of you winning, you know, one in a hundred essentially are – it's a, it's a slim chance of you actually winning. So it makes those small instances of getting a victory royale or whatever it may be called in your particular game that much more rewarding and so there's something to be said about the difficulty of of a game like Valheim and to know that if that's your goal is to survive, then you might have to decide to run away instead of yeah. fighting. Like you in order to maintain the stuff that you have or think twice about doing something before going into battle and and maybe reassessing like old Leroy Jenkins style in a, mm -hmm. in a big circle and say, what Gotta crunch do a those number numbers. crunch for me? What are we looking yeah. at? Yeah, exactly. And I got to say to my point about recognizing. So apparently Valheim is 
is a Viking thing because it says two yeah, million yeah. Vikings on there. So kudos to me That's for right. recognizing just out of the blue that Valheim was a Viking name. I'm just going to pat myself <laughs> on the back for that one because g- go me. Yeah, the game essentially takes place in like purgatory in like Norse mythology. Um, where you have to take out all these, yeah, Ooh, these, these legends. Nice. Well, that's, I mean, who doesn't like Norse mythology? Like, that's that's really big right now, too, with uh, different series yeah. on Netflix, like Vikings and, you know, Thor being obviously everyone's favorite Avenger. Who doesn't like Thor, right? He's, I mean, uh, the Thor that kind of gave up there at the end of uh, Dad Bod Thor. Fat at the Thor, end of- I... Fat Thor to me, okay, so this is a this is an aside, but it was a great look at depression. I know everyone saw was thought it was funny, but it was a great look at depression and what depression can do to someone. Mm. But I also liked it because it gave bigger guys like me uh, a leg up in the cosplay world to be like, I'm gonna embrace fat thor like fat thor was awesome and so yeah i mean he pretty much looked like the dude Big Lebowski, <laughs> straight up yeah, yeah right yeah so that's that to me was a really cool a really cool thing to see is because all superheroes are you know they have the superhero bods and there's nothing wrong with that right like that's what superheroes look like but uh i want a thick boy a superhero not the blob. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that Marvel villain, right? Yeah. Yeah, that he was just like this giant, like amorphous, like blob yeah. that could bounce around. I remember fighting him once in like one of the Marvel uh, video games and being like, seriously? But, <laughs> right, I mean, just a fat dude. <laughs> the comics, I mean, they, yeah, every yeah. gimmick you can think of has been covered at some point. But we'll be back in just a little bit and we'll be talking more about, of course, those controller drift issues right after this. <laughs> All right, it is 6.54 in the morning, somewhere out there, I'm sure. So, Nick, what do we got? There's there's some controller drift issues that I've heard about, um, only because it's plagued my news feed since they've been occurring. And it's something that uh, you and I have dealt with since the N64 days. You know, remember turning on your Nintendo 64 and accidentally having the controller... Uh, thumbstick, like the joystick moved all the way to the left or the right, and then you turn on the game, and then your character like permanently moved to the <laughs> to the left. Did you have the- that problem? Because I didn't. What? Uh, yeah, okay, occasionally, yeah. So wow. it was one of those things where they told you don't start the don't start the controller. Like it, it, you know, oh, it may, in one may direction. Yeah, right. well, like yeah. holding any of the buttons or anything like that because they might stick essentially within in the game, and they definitely did. And it was always like it was never in a helpful way. Like, oh, I can automatically move forward now. It was like, nope, I can run in a circle now for six hours and don't have to do anything. So yay to I that. Mean, I definitely got like Cheeto dust or something in like one of the button, like it was the C buttons, and so that that kind of got you know perma stuck. On oh, one, oh. but controller drift is kind of its own thing, right? And, yeah. and this is what why I wanted to bring this up because, yeah. So one of the, the big article that came out um, that I, I shared on Reddit and got a lot of interesting opinions from people is about this new class action lawsuit that's been filed against Sony about controller drift related to the PlayStation 5 DualSense controller. Just to be completely fair, because this is not a problem that is exclusive to Sony. 
you know, that this is not about me saying, oh, let's let's just bring this article out so we can talk about how we hate Sony. <laughs> because no, there are ongoing lawsuits with both Nintendo and even Xbox right now. Even for the Xbox. same issue. Even Xbox. It's got them all. About controller drift. And I think it's a really interesting conversation because the more that I, I heard people's opinions on it um, and the more I kind of learned about the deep dive of hardware and, and, and maybe the reasons behind why this is happening that I'm curious to get your, your take on, Bruno. So, yeah, so this this lawsuit is basically saying that, you know, Sony's conduct is unlawful, unfair, yada, yada, usual legal speak um, in relation to the fact that these DualSense controllers are getting controller drift issues. Of course, a controller drift meaning it's a situation where your joystick is in a neutral position, but the game or the hardware thinks it's actually sending out a signal of, oh, move slightly left or move yep. slightly up or maybe yep. even more than slightly. Totally. Which is, of course, causing your, your, you know, your user interface or your game to register inputs that you didn't want. Yeah. And oftentimes this can happen just as a result of just scratching the surface, like the contact points where you know the the joystick makes contact and actually creates that uh, you know electric signal of like hey this mm. is the direction i want to go where if you're if you really if you treat these things like you know arcade sticks you know like you're playing soul caliber or something oh, yeah. in an arcade and just absolutely crushing these things it's just a matter of time until you probably do some serious damage definitely yeah yeah they're not going to last forever i think it's an interesting conversation point because you know you and i as as millennials we have seen a lot of generations and a lot of iterations of controllers and what goes right and wrong with them. Oh, yeah. It's interesting that you talk about, you know, that you had some problems with Nintendo 64 controllers because, you know, for on the Nintendo side, right, that was the first controller that actually featured a joystick. Yeah. And uh, that thing was, was, was rock solid for me. I never remembered having an issue. And I think the problem is everybody's experience is kind of anecdotal, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody treated their controllers differently. You know, some kids were rage-throwing it against walls. Some were, you know, like like I said, playing games like uh, me Mario. Out? Are you calling me out? No. <laughs> I mean, no, you didn't get that salty when you were playing games. No, no, no. no. I get that salty sometimes, but I never threw a controller. But I think I threw an NES controller a couple times, but NES games speak for themselves, oh, and yeah. that thing was an absolute tank. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, like I'm saying, like some people are playing games like Mario, party on the on the Nintendo 64 where you have to absolutely just demolish that joystick in order to like play games where you have to spin it around as fast as possible. I go back and I think like man, you know, during my time playing the NES, the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo 64, even the PlayStation 1 and 2, I never had a single issue with controller drift. Not even once. And wow. Lord knows I put in the hours with, with yeah. those games and with those controllers. What's your experience been with controller drift? It's always, to me, just it comes towards the end of the life life cycle of a, of a controller for me. Mm -hmm. I, I know that there's a, a shelf life on these things. And I know the amount of time that I put into a game. So once the rubber starts to wear off of the joystick, I'm like, okay, maybe maybe it's time to get a new controller. So yeah. to me, it's never been that big of an issue. I feel like the amount of wear has been 
directly equal to the amount of time that I've put into the controller. There's only a few times where I've felt like this broke way too soon, and that was with the previous Xbox Elite controllers that came out with the Xbox One. Those controllers, uh, the actual L button and R button are are made in a way that it, they're, they pivot on a flimsy plastic piece, and I've broken two of them, um, two of the left bumpers. So that's the only terrible controller experience I've ever had, other than the fact that, like, I mean, I think as a millennial, we all had Mad Cats controllers as kids, and none right. of them ever worked. So those are the ones that you gave to your friends, like, legit. Yeah. They would come over. Or, or like, well, first of all, you have to preface that, like, your parents would buy these controllers for you. Right. right. Like you you wanted as a kid, we all wanted one of the color Nintendo 64 controllers like the blue or the red. They had green they had yellow. So mm -hmm. that's what you wanted. You wanted one of those. But you'd settle for a gray one like, you know, that that's right. fine. And then you get this monstrosity of a controller that looked nothing like the Nintendo 64 controller. Mm -hmm. It looked like a an amorphous blob, like you're talking about. Um, yeah. And it wasn't laid out the same, and nothing worked. Like, absolutely But at nothing. least it had a turbo button, Bruno. <laughs> at least did, it had that. What did that do, Nick? I don't even... I still, to this day, have no clue what it did. I don't even... I, it was I, just like a like a rapid fire thing. Like a lot of controllers, like back in the day, going as far back as the NES. Like when you would try and sell like an like a, a, a deluxe controller, yeah. one of the features would be that you'd have like a turbo button, right? Yeah. Where you get like if you if you press it, it'll rapid fire, you know, the button that you're pressing. So if there's a game like Metal Gear Solid that has like an event where you have to push a button as fast as possible, yeah, where you get like an edge. Ooh, but okay, it never yeah. served. It never served a practical purpose. But yeah, right. That was always your parents going in. Like, they have the instructions, get me a new controller for Christmas. And, of course, they're going to look at, like, the $30, you know, off-brand off, off Mad Cats option that's always specifically designed to be in a location they can easily see and be like, oh, that's it. Of course they're not going to get the $60 yeah. official hardware that's behind the counter. Like, yep. it, it's it's a no-brainer, no right? Yeah, so Andrew, was... this, is, this is just as good, okay? This is going to yeah. be just as fine as the other controller, and it's half the price. So I'm not going to pay for two controllers when I can get one at this price, okay? <laughs> right. But even those, like, I don't remember those having any problems. And, you know, Nintendo, though, I, I got to call them out here, Bruno, because uh -oh. between the three companies, right, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo that are having these ongoing legal issues with controller drift. Nintendo, you botched it. I'm, I'm just going to say it outright uh -oh. because the Joy-Con is not worth the price. You done did it. It just is not worth the price. It's a cheap piece of hardware that does not justify the, what, I think it's like $80 to get a pair of these things. Ooh. And I have had That's two rough. instances of noticeable controller drift issues um, in my in my entire career of gaming. The first happened, and this is mostly my fault, uh, with my Xbox One, I wanted to kind of get uh, extra controllers so that we could play, you know, party games with friends when they were over. So we had two controllers already that I bought new. So I went to GameStop and I got two refurbished controllers, okay? My bad. <laughs> because th these things within like a day of using them 
started to get really bad controller drift issues. Those are the ones that's that like some some guy named Josh threw up against yeah. a wall for sure. Yeah, definitely. Like, he threw, that was a Call then, of Duty controller. Yeah, that right. was a Call of Duty controller. Those are the refurbished controllers that at, at GameStop. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, cause I I know in the past when I've traded in controllers, they have like something set up where they can quickly test like the the joystick settings to make sure that there isn't an issue like drift and that all the buttons work. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I, I know that when you get a refurbished controller, it's supposed to go back to the manufacturer or to somebody, I guess, and they're supposed to fix any defects, and then it comes back. But this one went to a 15-year-old kid at GameStop yeah. who plugged yep. it in for approximately five seconds. Yeah. Hit it with the canned air and said, refurb. Good to go. Yeah. <laughs> Ship it. S- s- send her on her way. Yeah. And okay, here, here I come walking in. la dee You know, I'll take two. I'll take two. Ooh, this one looks new. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, you, you know, they did. They got me. Well, no, I got, I mean, I, I got to take those back because they were defective. Oh, but. of course, yeah. Yeah, where you could see, like, you know, these things, like you said, were definitely at the end of their lifespan, and, you know, the actual problem wasn't addressed. But that's with, you know, that was with hardware that I didn't buy new. But with the Nintendo Switch, I had major problems very early on, about a year or so after I bought it. And this is with light use, because oftentimes I would use a different controller other than the Joy-Cons. I usually use the Joy-Cons for mobile gaming. And uh, all of a sudden, I was playing uh, Super Mario 3D All-Stars, and there it was. The the Joy-Con drift started to happen. Now, I'm lucky because I bought one of the original Switches. A lot of people had major issues, but I was able to do some some basic fixes and and some stuff I looked online to kind of try and and work around it and manage to get it back into working order. But I know it's just going to be a matter of time until it happens again. But yeah, between the three, Nintendo is by far the worst when it comes to just the low quality of hardware that they're putting out. You know, if, if you hold a Joy-Con in your hand, Bruno, a single Joy-Con, and I, I say, you know, what's this worth? There's no way you're going to be like, uh, yeah, that's $40 for a single Joy-Con, right? You need two yeah. in most cases, so it's going to be an $80 affair because you have to buy them in pairs. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Nintendo is making it somewhat easy to get it repaired, get it fixed. Of course, Sony is being a little more notorious with their shoddy business practices and making it difficult for a lot of people um, in the U.S. especially to get it replaced. So hopefully, you know, as a result of a lawsuit like this, you know, that that something happens. And the only other thing I'll say is class action lawsuits, they just don't help the little guy. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Reached, it's reached the point now, especially after that, uh, that credit agency was at Equifax that oh. had the, the data breach and, you know, everyone was a part of that class action lawsuit and they ended up saying, well, you can take the cash option, but you're probably just going to get a couple bucks because so many people have signed up <laughs> or you can get like, you know, five years of, of, uh, you know, free online identity monitoring. And it's like, okay, like, you know, that that's when I officially lost faith. Like if a, if a massive credit score company like that can't be held liable for a number that actually puts money in the pocket of people affected, class action lawsuits only help the lawyers, guys. It, it's just uh, it's, that it's, simple. It's only going to benefit Chimicals. Chimicals Schwartzkreiner, that's the guy's name. The law firm of Chimicals Schwartzkreiner <laughs> and Donaldson Smith. 
Where did you get these names, man? That's the name of the guy. I'm adding that to the name of funny okay. names because yeah. it says right here in oh, the okay. article last oh my week, gosh. we reported on an investigation there into dual sense drift by law firm <laughs> Chemical Schwartzkreiner and Donaldson Smith. <laughs> oh, no, wait, that's one name. Chemical Schwartzkreiner. That's his L- name. Listen, man. This is, so here's, this is the thing. That's why he became a lawyer, because he's going to yeah. sue any – and here we go. We're talking about it on the air. So it's a good thing that my lawyer, Humphrey Bojangles uh, third is yeah. is going to be able to come to my aid because – You know, there's there's nothing that uh, would intimidate me. Like, who am I, who am I up against? Oh, they got chemicals. They got chim- – we got Methuselah honeysuckle. Sounds so like I'm- a Pokemon. <laughs> Like a gen, like a, like a a first evolution Pokemon, like the fire starter. It's chemicals, but you know, I it's you know there isn't a whole lot to extrapolate on. I, I I did think there was one interesting take that somebody had that I hadn't thought of, which is that you know the idea of having L three and R three where you click in the sticks is something that's uh, has been around in gaming as early as like the the, the PlayStation one when the Dual Shock controller was introduced, right? Yeah, except that the first time it told me to do that, I had no idea what in the hell I was supposed to do. L three yeah. and R three. Uh, yeah. I looked that? at the I looked at the screen like there's no button for it. Like it's not <laughs> I, labeled. I'm sorry, but uh, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. But there's no L three and R three, mainly because they were uh, they used in the game that I was playing. I don't remember what one it was, but instead of using an icon of the the joystick they mm-hmm. just used like the l button and then the three and you're like did you, is, that a, is that a typo in the video and nowadays game? you know what that is but back then it's like uh i, I think you just made up a button <laughs> it's, that's a nonsense a button. button nice try it's like yeah when kids say to hit like f5 or whatever it is all f5 <laughs> to quit out of the game it kind of got the the juices flowing because i'm thinking okay wait a second like you think about the modern shooter game, right? And it's the the left stick oftentimes will trigger like a sprint, right? And the right stick will trigger like a melee attack or maybe like a grenade toss, depending on your your control scheme. Where you really are using those buttons a lot more. And if a controller isn't built right to take that kind of abuse of being clicked in and out constantly, you have to wonder what kind of effect it had. One guy on Reddit said that starting with like his his PS4 whichever one it was that you had the uh, the paddles on the back yeah where he started assigning you know L3 and R3 to that and would never use them as intended in the game and click in the sticks and he never had a problem with you know anything with like Joy-Con or not Joy-Con but controller drift after that so one has to wonder like you know is is clicking in these sticks constantly also a reason why you know whatever connector in there is getting scratched and worn down but um, I also think there's probably some kind of not malicious intent, but you know them kind of maybe cutting corners on hardware. And in, in the case of Nintendo, definitely cutting corners. Oh, for but sure. But with the other guys, it's it's tough to say. Coming up next, we have a great interview from the guys at Dev Hour Games. Bruno, I had a chance to sit down and talk with them a few days ago about a game that once again caught my eye uh, called Loveland. So let's listen in on that now. <laughs> And here we are with our next Indie Spotlight segment where we're taking a look at some of the upcoming indie games that have kind of caught my attention during my uh, my random uh, ramblings through the Indie Games subreddit. And I am joined by a pretty dynamic team that I'm excited to kind of grill with some questions. These are the guys that are at Dev Hour Games. I'm joined by uh, Nick Jones, the programmer 
Chris Baracani, the designer, and Mark Liberto, the producer. Guys, how you doing? Doing great. Yeah, doing good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the the game that we're talking about. You know, I, I when I'm when I'm on Reddit looking at these trailers for indie games, you know, everyone's got an idea or a hook or something unique. But I think you guys really are taking the cake with what we're talking about today. By far, the the the, the quickest I was sold on a concept, and that is a, a game called Loveland. Why don't you go ahead and explain what the game's all about? Sure. Uh, Loveland is a low poly immersive horror game in which you take on the role of the detective who works for the unnamed agency. Uh, essentially, it is a horror game about frogs, uh, namely the Loveland frog. Uh, the detective and the agency are tasked with hunting down supernatural encrypted creatures. And uh, that's essentially what it's all about, is the detective attempting to figure out exactly what's going on in this trailer park uh, full of frogs. Of course, I don't want to give out too much. Uh, a lot of the mystery is in the actual environment itself, you know. Yeah, the important thing about about this game from the from the out, the outset was that we were pretty much trying to make a Im- immersive, you know, sim. We wanted it to be really focused, so we picked, you know, trailer park, you know, you you don't see that much and it's nice and tight, nice and focused, so we could really hone in on exactly who these who these people are. And and you mentioned the 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 theme itself. Chris, you're the one that introduced it to me, Nick, as well. I was never familiar with the Loveland Frog. I was familiar with a lot of cryptid creatures, but the Loveland Frog is you know, it's got to be a super unique one, right? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, because I guess that that leads into my next question, which was I guess it, it there actually is a cryptid story. I was wondering like out of out of all the hooks of of horror mystery games are just themes. You know, the, the the concept of a frog is so unique and so out there that just no one's doing. People are going for like, you know, arachnids or just like creepy crawlies or 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 animals that have a kind of a creep factor to them, but a frog, this is kind of new territory at least for me. So tell tell me more about the the cryptid. The whole idea to be doing something about cryptids uh, was inspired from our artist uh, Bon. He originally had this idea where he wanted to go with an X-Files type a scenario where you find supernatural creatures that uh, aren't too out of the norm that you would be more familiar with your typical urban legends. And so we were very intrigued by the idea of using a cryptid. So we immediately started, you know, digging into the more well-known ones, you know, we, we, we touched on the Flatwoods monster, Mothman and stuff like that. And we kind of bounced around between a lot of these cryptids until I, I think it was Bon himself just floated this frog he's like hey you ever heard of the loveland frog and we're like no uh and we we just took a look at the the article and you know all the information that's out there in the wikipedia pages and stuff and it was just so absolutely bonkers the idea of a of a four foot tall frog that stands on its hind legs reported to have used magic to uh you know attack people and you're right we had never heard of anything like that in our entire lives it's incredibly far-fetched and we just had to yeah it was it, it was too weird not to not to dive into like what would that be you know what how could we make that scary and that, that was really the question you know the 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 best thing about the Loveland Frog is really what's 
what's not said about him. Like there, there's, there's very little information about, about it as a, you know, as a myth, as, as a story, but what is there is really, I don't know. It's just really fun. And it's, it's so, it's weird. Yeah. You know, I would have to imagine that if there was a, a podcast about cryptids, which, you know, down nowadays is a podcast about everything that the Loveland frog would be way, way later in the show. Like you, you've gone through yeah. all the, all the big ones. But yeah, Definitely. just 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 frogs by itself is such a cool hook. I think as as a game, you know, hey, oh, it's a horror game about frogs. I think that was the title of your Reddit post, where I'm like, okay, I'm, much, I'm in, yeah. I'm in. Tell me more. You know, you <laughs> you had me at frogs. But yeah, and and speaking of which, another another thing that definitely uh, kind of drew me in is that retro style that you have in the game. Obviously, the filters that you're using in the game kind of give it that 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 PSX style, PlayStation style. What uh, any are there any games in particular that have influenced you guys in the PlayStation One era uh, to make this game? To talk about the visuals in the game, we'd actually have to go back to its original inception. A lot of people may not know this, but this uh, Loveland was actually originally created as part of a game jam. Um, mm-hmm. We signed up for two uh, game jams simultaneously. One was the Haunted PS One Summer of Screams jam, and the other was the sixty four by sixty four low res jam, which Essentially, you made a game uh, within 64 and 64-bit graphics. And we kind of saw this opportunity where what if we made a PS1-styled game that we could then downgrade to a 64 by 64. And then from there, you know, we kind of looked at a lot of PS1 games that had that kind of influence, stuff like Resident Evil, uh, Dino Crisis, Echo Knight by From Software played a little bit of part in the way we wanted to frame some things as well. But in reality, you know, we, we tried to go with the PSX style, but there are some things, you know, that, that we personally don't enjoy too much in that styling, vertex snapping, texture warping and stuff like that. We did opt not to include that kind of stuff because we feel it, while it is, you know, more traditional when it comes to PSX uh, style games, we found that this gave it more of a... Uh, an actual atmosphere. It made it much more aesthetically pleasing and not too cookie cutter among all the other PlayStation style games we have out there. It's a very subjective thing, you know, but in our, in our opinion, pretty much like we have access to, you know, shaders that other people have have written. We could put it in there if, if we wanted to, but it's, it's, it's one of those things. You don't just use every tool you have just because you, you have that tool. We thought that we respect PS1, uh, uh, you know, P- PSX style games, but we're not purists about it. We're not setting out to make a PS1 game in particular. We just love the way PlayStation games looked. Um, and we want to call back to that while also keeping it, you know, fresh and using the parts that we really love, like uh, like uh, dithering and color correction. Oh, the color correction's fantastic. Some of those features, like we said, it's just it it really helps sell the atmosphere so much, and uh, it's just something really creepy about it. You know, it it really works out. <laughs> it's this it's this mysterious kind of screen you have to you have to view the 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 world through and. You know, we we didn't start off with uh, with a huge art team, so it 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 really helps set the tone, and uh, you know maybe it could be seen as as even lazy, but 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 honestly, like it's one of those things. It's it, it just works. You know, it really does set the tone, and and players really do feel it and 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 vibe with it. So and that and at the end of the day, you know that's that's our job as people that make entertainment is you know to to make them make them feel feel something you know 
And I, I have to say, you know, as far as how a PlayStation 1 style game can really add to the horror experience of something, especially in first person where you kind of have a loss of, of, of sense of what's around you. I, I think, yeah, you definitely nail that, that aesthetic and just the, the raw appearance and, and the nature of the way that a pixelated game like that appears and kind of that first foray into, into home 3D experiences that, yeah, you, you, you just get a sense of unease that I think is very hard to recapture nowadays, but I think you guys are definitely onto something with, with how you portray it. Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing felt scarier than back when, you know, you were walking through that house in, in Resident Evil 1 and the zombie pops out in the, in the, out of the, <laughs> the cupboard. You know, it's, it's, it's stuff like that, that certain unease that just isn't matched nowadays. I completely agree with you on that. The dog's what got me. Oh, the dogs. I think everyone yeah. got hit by the dogs. <laughs> okay, and my next question, you did you did uh, allude to this earlier, but I have to press you a little bit more, and maybe it ties into the cryptid story more than I'm aware of, but uh, I have to go to the comment um, in one of the one of the playthroughs uh, of, of your game on YouTube that made me laugh out loud. That was, someone said, finally, a horror game that takes place in the most terrifying place of all, Ohio. So I have to wonder, not just Ohio, because obviously you said that kind of ties into the cryptid itself, but what on earth made you decide to go with a trailer park? What's scarier than a trailer park in the middle of night in the middle of Loveland, Ohio? I, I, if this, it's, it's, uh, I, I grew up in trailer parks most of my life, and they, they, they just are not well represented in video games, I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> and they're a very unique place to be. Yes. Um, yeah. You're usually isolated away from the world, you know, the, the the most you might hear of civilization is a distant highway roar, you know? The community in a trailer park is usually really close-knit. People, you know, people know each other. People know their comings and goings. They know what they do. They know what they like. They talk often, things like that. Yeah, and it's just a really grimy scenario, and it, it just plays to it kind of well you know it, there's nothing like i said there's nothing scarier than walking through a trailer park in the middle of the night it just has this eerie vibe to it you know there's this there's this mundanity to it you know that you walk in and you're like it's it's a trailer park in america but like what is more american than a trailer park gotcha and yeah and you know i think that just the combination of, of of frogs and the location and the trailer park you know really come together like i said that that it caught my eye when i was looking through you know all of these upcoming uh, indie game trailers so yeah i mean i think i think it all it's, it's all going to come together to create a really cool uh, horror experience and you know a lot of the indie studios that i that we've looked at so far on the podcast they're pretty focused in terms of the kind of games that they're putting out but looking at your page man you guys have a unique mix of games we're talking a a unique take on uh pie cross i think it's called or p cross with depixation Picross, yes. yeah depixation uh, depiction correct depiction there <laughs> you go yeah and also a doom 2 mod that literally puts you inside your recreation of the national video game museum uh, uh, uh in in texas so I have to wonder, with with all of these different ideas, you know, what causes you as a studio to want to create such a wide variety of genres? The easy way to put it would be uh, our slogan: uh, "We make games that we want to play." And we also have ADD. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's what a bunch of people with ADD want to play all the time. You know, it's uh, whatever really we. 
we make games because we love to make games. You know, we, we want to play the things that we come up with. We have these crazy ideas and it, you know, it might just be a, a weird puzzle game or this one might be a, a horror game about frogs and the next one might be a, a first person shooter. You know, it, we really don't limit ourselves on what we want to create because we really do want to create anything. I mean, we have some plans in the future to create like rock crushing simulators. Um, you know, in our previous life, we've actually done flood management uh, simulators. Uh, we, we've we've literally made just about anything you could imagine, and um, we're just going to continue to do that. We we don't like one particular type of game. We love everything. Yeah, if you see our game li- libraries, you know we're playing everything from JRPGs to RTSs, to grand strategies, first person games. You know everything. We and we and we love it all. Tabletop games, D and D. At the end of the day, making games is is as fun or more fun, more fun than playing them. You know, we just a few months ago, whenever we started the 64 by by 64, you know, low, low res jam, we got in a room and we said, what if? And we came out with what if what if this trailer park is taken over by the Loveland frog that can that has the ability to take over their minds, you know, slowly o- over time. And, 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 ugh, and there's some crazy stuff in Loveland that people are going to see. And those were a, a bunch of what ifs and they were all met with, yeah, yeah, you know, and just excitement. And that's what, that's what happens when you, you feel good at something, you know, you, it makes, it makes you feel smart, you know, to, <laughs> to sit, come up with these systems and make people happy. And it's fun. It really is. It's the best job on the on the on the planet. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it's it's so evident that you guys have the not only the passion but a clear vision. You know that it's literally in your slogan that it, it's not just about one idea that you know became something. It's it's more about a an idea, a concept and a, and a principle behind what you're making. So yeah, you know this is this is sounding awesome. From what I I got to see the a full playthrough of the demo that you have available, and I'm I'm sold. I'm definitely there whenever this comes out. So. Yeah, thanks guys so much for for coming on and make sure if you are interested in learning more about what these guys have to offer, you can stop by their website that is devourgames.com. If you'd like to wish list this upcoming game Loveland on Steam, also you can check the description for the podcast uh, and that'll take you right on over. And yeah, Chris, Mark, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Wish you the best of luck with uh, with this and all of your future endeavors. Yeah, we really appreciate it. One thing I'd like to say is uh, definitely give us a wish list because what you've seen so far uh, barely scrapes the iceberg about what's going to happen in the uh, the full game. Trust us on that. I did see that Nick Page uh, that Nick Cage picture <laughs> that you submitted. Can you can can you guys book him? He's doing just about you know, anything these days. Uh, I've got Nick Cage on the other line. I, I put him on 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 hold for this. So. I, I, I should get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, good luck with Loveland. No Thank problem. You. Have a thanks, great man. one. And we're back. It's eight fifty-seven at night, um, somewhere fast. out there. Yeah, man. I'm. I'm. Time has flown by. It was just seven o'clock in the morning, like fifteen minutes ago. So wow, what an amazing interview that was. Uh, first of all. They mentioned Mothman, which actually Mm -hmm. hits home. So the whole idea of this cryptid-type horror game definitely hasn't really been done. I guess Slenderman kind of turned into a a cryptid type of character, but Mm -hmm. going reverse from stories such as the Loveland Frogman, which is a thing. Nick, you can look this up. I kid you not. 
it's got a whole Wikipedia page and there's an artist rendering of yeah. the size of the frog and everything. And love this. To- First of all, this totally sounds like the type of story that would come out of a place like Loveland, Ohio. Like the fact that there's a, a man, a giant man frog that does magic is right. just something that you'd hear at like Sheets. Or <laughs> sheets. <laughs> you're yeah. just you're just going in to get to get a your MTO. Uh, you know you're made to order sandwich. Grab yes. a grab a, some funyuns and a Mountain Dew. And here comes here comes Joyce right in the mm-hmm. door. Crazy Joyce from down the street, and she's oh, talking she's, about she's been seeing that frog. Yep, yeah, she's been seeing that frog man again, and she's it's. It, it it does the magic, I swear. It does magic. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, Joyce, you know, seeing those frogmen again. Yeah. I'll t- give me a pack of um, a pack of that Orbit gum over there, Barbara Bob. Marlboro Light Ultras. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me my Newports. Give me my Newports oh and we're gosh. out of here. Okay. So... You know, that's that's the type of story that you'd expect. But they, you know, they mentioned Mothman, which actually hits home for us because we are West Virginia natives and that is our resident cryptozoological animal. So that was exciting. I love the art style. It looked like Hello Neighbor meets Slender Man. A little bit, yeah. Um, you know, it, it had that Slender Man vibe where you're you're figuring out what's going on within this area and it had that hello neighbor type art feel where it was primitive but still engaging in in a, in a stylistic way and right. like i i it reminded me of VHS with that overlay screen that you guys were talking about i don't know what yeah, that that filter yeah. yeah that like filter it just gave mm-hmm. me like a VHS it did i definitely had an X-Files vibe to it. It definitely felt like that. And they're right. There's nothing scarier than a trailer park in Ohio, except a trailer park in West Virginia. That's the only thing scarier. (laughs) The more I thought about it, the more I'm like, wow, they're right. Like, not only did they come up with a a great idea for this cryptid that's been out there that anybody could have made a game based off of. Yeah. You know, and the horror genre has been done to death at this point with different unique takes and and monsters that, you know, you you have to learn about as you go through. It's, they really stumbled onto gold with this because, like I said, as far as we know, no one's done anything with the Loveland Frog before. Yeah, totally. And a trailer park is not really like a scene that you see in any kind of game. They're they're totally right. Like, it is not represented. The yeah. only game I can immediately think of, and I've got a pretty wide range of, uh, of experience over the days with just, just different weird types of games. There was a MS-DOS shooter, or like a Windows 95. I don't know what it was, but it was called Redneck Rampage. Oh, yeah. The classic. Everyone, uh, that was on everyone's list, Christmas yeah. list. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was everyone's favorite, but it was basically just Doom. But with, you know, Billy Bob, you yep. know, going through and, and you got your, you know, your, your sawed off shotgun and, you know, you're, you're taking care of business like some demons invade your trailer park. But yeah, it, it's, it was a really cool interview. The guys were really awesome. And, you know, I, uh, it, it's, it's a very unique idea, the studio and, and their idea of let's make games that we want to play. Rather than, you know, let's let's just come up with one idea for a game and that's it. Like I said, these guys have such a wide range of the games they've already put out spanning across different genres. 
But as they revealed in the interview, like other games in the future that they're looking to create that are crazy, like, you know, rock simulators and that kind of thing of just like <laughs> these guys. I mean, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall when these guys are sitting together and, and talking about what their ideas are going to be for a new game. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more because as that interview kind of teased, it sounds like things are going to get pretty crazy pretty fast after what we were able to see in the demo. Yeah, and I could definitely see this spinning into multiple episodes of where this character figures out this story behind the Loveland Frog. And then maybe they do go on to to dis- to learn about Mothman or some of the many other cryptids out there like – Sasquatch, or mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, something called Colossal Claude here in Ooh. Oregon. I don't really know what that is. And okay, maybe maybe for the next chapter, they can have like once you find out all the information about it. Um, maybe maybe the protagonist goes on like the Maury Povich show with his findings. You know? Oh man, yeah. that would be a great follow up too. Just like a great cutscene, like they have an F one where you do those like short little interviews. Yeah. Just in between is you just interviewing at the Maury Povich show, right. and maybe that could be the whole premise of the game. Just like yeah. Maury Povich sends you out on these, you know, you're on his <laughs> street team, street <laughs> team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to be a part of our street team you can always hit up quitthebuild.com and check out our community page where we have tons of awesome gaming merch uh we have a new keep calm and quit the build t-shirt that was just uploaded up on there and uh there's links to all of our social media to instagram to youtube to our discord channel so by all means be sure to head on over to quitthebuild.com where you can get all that amazing stuff and and more, some awesome blog articles. We've got more coming down the pipeline. This has been a great episode, Nick. What do you think? Yeah, you know, the, the website has just been getting cooler and cooler by the day. And like I said, yeah, the blog has a little bit of something for everybody. It's such a cool mix of of gaming and, and 90s nostalgia and, and, of course, beer with our newest <laughs> article. And I'm right? telling you, like, you know, if, if you are a millennial like us, this is the kind of content that you're going to love because we're passionate about it and totally. and we're we're it's the stuff that we want to talk about and the stuff that we love so we know that you'll you'll probably like it as well. And hey, if you're an indie developer and you have a game that is coming up that or has released recently and you would like to be featured in our indie spotlight segment, you can send us an email there at quitthebuild at gmail.com and uh, we'll we'll get in touch with you and everything lines up. We'll be able to get you on, a, hopefully get you on a future segment to, to kind of let you showcase to the world what you got going on. We'd love to do it. Definitely. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening and for tuning in. It has been a blast. I enjoy it every time. And every time we gain another listener out there, it really does mean a lot to us. So we appreciate you, our listener, and everyone out there that helps us make Quit the Build uh, run from all the people that submit articles and all these amazing indie developers who are just coming at us with great games and giving us something to talk about. Thanks so much. We will be back again this Saturday with a new episode. For Nick, I'm Bruno. And for Bruno, I'm Nick. Peace out. What it do.